You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, Turkey says it will launch an all-out offensive against Kurdish forces in Syria if America delays withdrawing its troops from the country. Plus... The reactions of supporters of Felix Shisekevedi, who, after accusations of vote-rigging in the Democratic Republic of Congo's elections, has finally been announced as the new leader. Will there be a smooth handover of power? My guests Florence Biederman and Tim Marshall will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including as his official visit to the UK gets underway, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has a message for Theresa May. Please avoid a no-deal Brexit. And... Happy birthday, Tintin! The cartoon boy journalist with the blonde quiff and white dog turns 90 this month. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Medori House. My guest today are Florence Biederman, who is the London Bureau Chief for Agence France Presse, and Tim Marshall, editor of the What and the Why.com and the former diplomatic editor of Sky News. A very warm welcome to both of you. Hi. Now, let's start with the Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan, because he has threatened to launch an all-out offensive against Kurdish troops in Syria if America delays pulling its troops out of the war-torn country. In a surprise announcement made last month, the US President Donald Trump said that 2,000 soldiers will be withdrawn from Syria. The news was welcomed by Turkey, which regards the Kurdish forces as terrorists. However, Turkish officials have accused America of making a grave mistake in demanding assurances on the safety of the Kurds ahead of a troop withdrawal. To say that this is a rather untidy situation, Tim, is to put it mildly. Indeed. And um, let me make it even more complicated. The Kurdish troops in question are pretty much um, what the Turks regard as terrorists. Despite that, the Americans have been arming and training them for uh, some time now. So the Americans are embedded with these Kurdish troops in northern Syria. Up to 2,000 of them, mostly special forces, are there. And they are what is stopping Turkey making a third incursion into Syria to attack these Kurdish troops. And uh, despite this rhetoric from Mr Erdogan, I don't think they will do it if the Americans are still in the way because America still has enough leverage. And what has happened over the past week is, uh, after Mr. Trump made his remarks about getting the hell out of Dodge, uh, Pompeo, Secretary of State, and John Bolton, uh, National Security uh, Advisor, toured the Middle East and said, actually, don't worry, we're not going quite yet. Uh, so I do think they are going to stay in the way for the next few months while they sort this incredible jigsaw out. Mm, and incredible jigsaw really is the statement of the day because it really John Bolton, who's Donald Trump's national security advisor, Florence, he actually demanded these assurances, which 
does seem rather extraordinary because he is an experienced diplomat. He knows how the Turks think. So this really was an unpardonable blunder on his part, surely. I think it's kind of game. I mean, everybody knows the Turks have been considering uh, the, the Kurds uh, fighting in, in Syria as terrorists since decades. You know, for them, they are kind of an emanation of the PKK, who is the party that has been fighting in Turkey since 1984 for a Kurdish independence. So they have always been the enemy. But, 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 I mean, there are other enemies in Syria that are also like the Islamists. And Turkey has been so far careful not to enter massively and to crush the Kurds. So I think there is this kind of game. Uh, the Turks want somehow uh, to show that they are ready to, to fight, uh, to, to defend their borders to the price of fighting IPG, the Kurdish militia. I, I'm not sure they are ready really to squash them because they know that the Occidentals and not only the Americans, but also the French, for example, yes. uh, defend them because they have been fighting for the uh, interest of the West, uh, fighting against the Islamists. So it's kind of triangular a bit complicated game, but of course, in the way they talk, in the way he talks, Erdogan will be very, very assertive. And they've even said this time they could even go east of the Euphrates River. Now, it is not thought they even have the air cover and power to do that. I mean, Mr. Erdogan has spent the last two years hollowing out the um, Turkish army after the attempted coup d'etat. So there are various reasons why I don't think he's about to launch an invasion. At some point, they will try and crush these Kurds because th- those Kurds allied mm. to Kurds across the border. And that would effectively depend on the American position, though, surely. Yeah, and the Americans will probably leave at some point, but I just don't think they're going to go yet. And what will happen if, if I'm right, and it's going to be months before they leave, in that interim period, the Arab states are going to try to peel uh, Assad, the president, who they've now accepted has not lost the war. I'm not saying he's won it, but he certainly mm-hmm. hasn't lost it. And they're going to spend this time peeling, trying to peel him away from the Iranians, at which point you could even see a scenario where Assad allies his forces with the Kurdish forces, and together they present this front towards Turkey, which means Turkey would actually have to take on the Syrian army as well. So this it's, it's, it's what was an, a civil war is just about over. We are now in this Mm. war by proxy, which is diplomacy and military, and that's the game we're in at the moment. And that's the point that I was going to raise, actually, which we can perhaps explore in a bit more depth, Florence, is the fact that the the nature of the Syrian conflict has changed. Before, when it it first began, it was effectively the anti-Assad forces who were trying to overthrow him, but now you've got all these other players who are on the stage, and Turkey, I guess, could be, or is, is pretty much the latest addition to an expanding cast. Yes, and in the end, it plays in Assad's hand because he's still now in power and he seems he will stay in power. And uh, as Tim said, he's rather winning the war. So he's profiting of all this rivalry in a, in a very clever way to, to, to stay where he is. Mm. And where does this, this leave America, more specifically, its reputation? Because this whole chapter really began with those words on the part of Donald Trump that he wanted American troops out of Syria. Yes, it was plain to the audience at home, but it cost him his defence chief. He's now, of course, got another one. But in terms of America's reliability as an ally, even though they, they said, look, you know, we will work with the Kurds, don't worry, it's not, all, it's not all game over yet. Why on earth should they trust them, given that the American president is very volatile? Well, they'd be foolish to trust Anybody would be foolish to trust anybody in that snake pit that, mm. that is... Uh, but that is effectively what Mr. Bolton okay, is saying, yes, you trust us. Okay, firstly, you're talking about American uh, prestige uh, and its standing. Mr. Obama seriously diminished it when he had his red line 
gas attacks. That was crossed. He did nothing. Trump campaigned on getting out of Dodge. He is actually trying to, uh, and let's face it, strategically, Syria is not that important to the Americans. They've got much more important things from their perspective to get on with. And, and this, this is part of a process of drawing in from there to go elsewhere. Last bit of uh, this. I accept that the Kurds will say, you've abandoned us at some point, and that other people, allies perhaps in Afghanistan, allies in Iraq, allies here, will think we can't trust them. But I think they always knew that. And the Kurds, by the way, have a saying, uh, we have no friends but the mountains. Hmm. And interestingly enough, um, didn't Recep Tayyip Erdogan actually pen an op-ed piece in one of the American newspapers effectively saying, look, you know, we're the guys who can actually take care of I- ISIS, if, but really sort of pandering, if you like, to, to Donald Trump, because he's, he's made this one of the central points of his campaign. He's also got an eye on 2012, 2020 as well. Yeah, and I mean, this was kind of a secret alliance with, uh, with uh, Russia, like to, to try to crush uh, everybody around, uh, ISIS and the Kurds. So that's more or less what he has in mind right now. But I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure the Russian would follow him anyway, and they would also still play their game with the Kurds. Yeah, they have, sorry, briefly, they ha- he has had some success. I mean, ISIS is not destroyed, but it is pretty smashed and broken. And he, he's had a, a, a small foreign policy success with that. Hmm. But the bottom line is that he's still in a pretty untenable situation because on the one hand, he has to win back the trust of the Kurds, which he effectively lost by saying, look, guys, we're going to leave. But at the same time, he needs to assuage Turkey. And of course, Turkey's ultimate ship surely is that it is a NATO ally. And we do have a very ambivalent hmm. relationship with the Turks. Agreed, but the power lies with the Americans. They don't care about the Kurds. Um, they are on the on the way out. And if Turkey can block Iranian influence, America's reasonably happy with that. Like like I said, the, their game is almost over in Syria. The the war by proxy will go on for some time. Florence, yeah, I, I agree. Okay, then let's move on now to uh, another country which has been making the news. And this is uh, the elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the presidential elections, in fact, because they have been won by the opposition candidate Felix Shisekedi. Now, if confirmed, Mr. Shisekedi will be the first opposition challenger to win since the DRC gained independence from Belgium back in 1960. The current president, Joseph Kabila, who's been in power for 18 years, came in third place. And although the final result has so far been uncontested, allegations are already circulating of a potential power-sharing deal between Mr Tshisekedi and Mr Kabila. Another complicated situation, but look, there are concerns about the integrity of this election, and that's understandable given the controversy surrounding the polls. There were delays and accusations that some people were disenfranchised. Florence? So it's, it's a very original situation, I mean, for, for, for an African election. First of all, it's not the candidate in power who wins with 90% of the vote. OK, I caricature a little bit, but... A bit. And second, uh, I mean, uh, the, the opponent, the main opponent, yes, is, is, uh, is, is going to win, obviously. But what is also very original is uh, that as soon as he was elected, he said uh, he would cooperate with uh, the former president and he saw him as a partner. I mean, a few weeks before, like, he was telling him, like... Uh, 
a dictator and he was criticizing him. So yeah, the, the, the result also has been contested by uh, the, the church. Who Okay, the church is not the electoral commission, but they have also their network and they pretend it doesn't reflect the reality. They, they don't say who won, but you understand it's the second opponent, the one who arrived second. Uh, so yes, all the suspicion is how, how come suddenly this opponent is so ready to cooperate with, uh, with the president. And that, that would be an original pattern uh, in an election that uh, the main opponent appears not to be an opponent anymore once uh, he arrives in power. And, okay, Chisekedi is a big name in, in, in Congo. His father was a historical opponent to to uh, the dictatorship of Mobutu. So he has this kind of status, like he has to be an opponent because his father was a historical opponent. It appears like he doesn't have exactly the same personality and the suspicion is that he could be manipulated by, by Kabila mm. who very cleverly uh, would have manage to 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 make him play his own game. Mm. Uh, but Tim, let's let's look at that the potential um, relationship between these two guys because there is the argument that logically it would make sense for the winner to work with the man he's replacing. Because let's be clear about this, Kabila has very, very powerful links in the army and the security services. And at the end of the day, you are nothing without the military behind you. Exactly. And he's been in power 18 very long years. And this is why it's possibly positive. I mean, Florence is, is much more knowledgeable about the DRC than I am. But you know, I know Mbuto, Patrice Lumumba, Kabila. I mean, what a catalogue of disaster this poor country has suffered mm. for. And a very resource-rich country as yes. well, which, which really justifies, yes. well, not justifies, but it, it, it underpins so, that tragedy. So if it could get some form of stability and try to wrest control of some of these natural resources away from the foreign powers, that they don't plunder it, but they seem to be doing very well mm. out of but it. But it's the fact that corporates are actually involved yes. in, in, in the government as Ch- well. Yeah, China's huge there and, and others. So I'm, I'm trying to come back to you your question, that, that it, there does seem to be some shenanigans that, that have gone on. It does look like uh, that Kabila has, is accepting this victory because he knows that with the proportion of the vote that went for his candidate and the proportion of the vote that went for the victor, the middle guy gets squeezed out and they can do a deal and get some, some sort of stability. Now, if there's shenanigans... Uh, I think the best thing for DRC is simply stability. There was one thing I, I wanted to ask Florence. I mean, I know there was 40,000 of the Catholic Church observers. I don't fully understand their role. What is their role in all this? Why, why are they the ones that the observers are? They are important. As I say, I mean, they have a moral authority. Uh, they are not the electoral commission, so they couldn't properly read, I mean, uh, the name of the candidates, I guess, but they have their informants and it's kind of control control commission in a way. So that's why what they say is still important for the people. Mm. But but I agree with you. I mean, whatever the result is so far, what's positive is that there were no violence. Yeah. Sure. Uh, uh, but le- let's wait and see. I mean, it can still happen if the other opponents, the number two, like also who has been supported by France in a way, because France intervened to say, oh yes, we have the feeling it's not the right candidate that has been elected. Mm. So involved we, in an African re- election? Yeah, I, I, Surely I, not. I was, I was quite 
surprise. I, I, I thought I thought those times were behind us, but that was one of the first countries to react. Anyway, so if there there is kind of uh, uh, insistent on the candidate like to to really go and complain about mm. it because and to mobilize right to complain. There, to there could still be some violence, but. Uh, I agree. The first good news was it seems there could be a transition, even if it's not a real alternative, like to to the present uh, power that would lead the country not to more violence. As a stability, I don't know. I mean, mm. but at least uh, to to a certain level of uh, yeah. uh, peace in uh, in the electoral process, which already is good because everybody was fearing violence in these elections. Sure. And, and, so. and it, it is it is amazing given given Congo's history and particularly the history of this election, the controversy surrounding it, that there hasn't been any violence. And look, we have mentioned the church, and I'd like to explore the role of the church in this because the church actually said that. Um, the final results do not tally with its own findings. And so, really, there is a danger that by casting doubt on these results that the church could unintentionally be fanning that potential for violence, even though it's trying to avoid that. So the church has to tread a very careful line on this. Which is why they haven't gone as far as said the election has been stolen. They're just saying there appears to be some discrepancies we need to look at. They didn't give a a name for uh, the one who is supposed to have won, in in their opinion. So I think they are careful. They're doing what you said. They're they're treading a careful line. And and, anyone who knows anything about the DRC, the big headline is that six million people have died there in the wars and the famines called by the wars the last 30 mm. years. Six million. It's it the is world. one of those conflicts which has been horrifically underreported Un- yes. in the mainstream media. Partially, simply, you've got to look at the geography. It's bigger than Western Europe. There are massive places as big as some of the European countries where there are no roads. Now, that's not an excuse for not covering, but it's, it's, it's a reason why it's less covered than it might have been. And it's not only the conflict, but the conflict is only in one part of the country, like mm. in the east, at the border with Rwanda, Uganda. But, I mean, Kinshasa itself, I mean, and the country itself, I mean, the, the level of infrastructure, I mean, the poverty, mm. I mean, the degree of abandon of the people by, by, by the state or the government yeah. is really appalling that's that's even more more i mean uh, heartbreaking than um, a real war i mean mm. it's, it's a permanent uh, uh, struggle for life for everybody and we shouldn't forget as well that yes you've had legacy players who would have watched this result notably the french and, and other international powers but we sh- yeah. exactly the belgians but we shouldn't forget rwanda and and the country's nearest neighbours, because they've also got a stake in this, and they're quite keen to make sure that you get a decent you get a decent outcome on this this election. Florence, yes, and again, this election is not solving the problem of what's happening in the east with all the destabilisation. I mean, this is the the, the area with where, where those incredible wells are. I mean, the mines, etc. And uh, Kivu is still, I mean, a very destabilised part of the country. And the role played by Rwanda and Uganda, by the conflict between Tutsi and Hutu. Okay, we can go over all the whole story, but it's still a, a very unstable uh, region. And, I mean, Kabila has not really mastered uh, this conflict. Mm. Okay, then. So, one of those conflicts, well, no conflict at the moment, but certainly a country to watch. An uneasy calm has settled there on the streets as far as we know. So one to keep an eye on in the future. But you are listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster. Also Florence Biederman and Tim Marshall. Coming up next, will Brexit, yes, the B word, be on the menu for the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe during his visit to Britain? See that man sitting opposite you on the subway, lost in another world? Or that smart woman scribbling notes while having her flat white? Well, here's what links them. 
They're both listening to Monocle 24 via our free radio app that simply and seamlessly lets you tune in live or download shows for later enjoyment. Just think, you too could be settling back enjoying cultural nourishment in the form of the Monocle Arts Review, being briefed on the world of business with the entrepreneurs, or just enjoying great music with the sessions at Midori House. Come on, download the Monocle 24 app today, stick on your headphones, and have informed fun on the go. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Still with me are Florence Biederman and Tim Marshall. Now, the Japanese leader Shinzo Abe, who's on an official visit to Britain, is likely to urge Prime Minister Theresa May to do everything she can to avoid a disorderly Brexit. Mrs May is struggling to persuade Parliament to accept her plan for Britain to withdraw from the European Union. Fears are now growing that the UK could leave the EU without a deal, something that worries Japanese firms who, encouraged by successive British governments, have invested billions of pounds in the country. Earlier today, it was also reported that the car giant Honda has told its British workers that production will be halted for six days in April due to Brexit disruption and border logistics. Tim, I get the impression that Theresa May has to be one of the unluckiest prime ministers of this country in recent times, because, yes, you've got this battle going on with her parliament. You've got the Japanese prime minister coming to the country and then you have a Japanese car manufacturer telling the country and indeed the world that it's actually going to temporarily close down production or certainly limit it because of the Brexit um, situation. Well, she wanted the job. That's true, but... (laughs) Okay, no, you're right. Let's be kind to her. (laughs) Things have not gone well, nor are they about to go well next week. There's a new thing, poll out today of MPs, that allegedly her deal will be voted down by an even greater margin than uh, last time. Which defeats the object of actually stalling the vote. I mean, not not last time, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, she stalled it. The numbers of people that were going to vote against it then, apparently, they're even greater now. Okay, uh, on the car, on Honda, uh, there's some detail missing here. Honda actually does close for several days every summer, and that's because of the German car parts, uh, sorry, the uh, the car parts industry and the Mm. flow of equipment. Uh, but yes, um, it's going to be more difficult mm. and they are forward planning in case of... Yeah, it's basically no supply chain disruption, yes. the potential for yes. supply chain disruption. Okay. Uh, another thing that's not been much reported, um, the mayor of Calais has said there will be no extra checks, even with a no Brexit, at Calais. So, you know, uh, it's going to be very bumpy if it's no deal, but it may not be the catastrophe. It might be. I, I don't know. But, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to put everything out there on the table mm. when I think one side only ever puts one side and the other side only ever puts the other side. And I'm not on either side. Uh, right. Sorry. To, to uh, Shinzo Abe. I think the headline out of this is he has strongly uh, reiterated in an interview with the Nikkei yesterday uh, an invitation saying he will back strongly Britain joining, wait for it, the TPP, the TTT. <laughs> Florence, what's he going to join? The TPP. Trans-Pacific TPP. Partnership. But no, no, it's the Comprehensive Agreement. Yeah. Right, Trans-Pacific. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the renamed TPP, which the Americans are not in, uh, and of course the British aren't because we're not in the Pacific the last time I looked. Nevertheless, uh, Abe uh, has said that to the Nikkei. He will say it again to Theresa May tomorrow. Now, this organisation is not um, will not supplement the amount of money and goods and trade we have with the EU, but it it is another 
aspect of this idea of global Britain. So f- for me, that that is a headline. Abe saying, do what you can not to have a no deal. It's irrelevant what he says about this deal. It is not irrelevant, him inviting us to join that Yeah, it's, it's quite symbolic. It's something that Mrs May can hold on to and perhaps throw into the political arena, maybe perhaps... Um, chip away at those um, MPs who have said, look, we're not going to vote for the deal, end of, and this this might be something which perhaps could swing them the other way. Yeah, I mean, Shinzo Abe actually gave a press conference, like, just, just before this programme, and he said... Uh, I hope we wish the whole world hopes that uh, uh, the parliament uh, will uh, will vote uh, the agreement, which, by the way, is a bit extraordinary because usually prime minister don't interfere. Said, okay, of course mm. it's the will of the British people, but we really hope this mm. agreement will be adopted, which everybody knows it. Well, Obama very tried that. probably that didn't go very well. Won't so uh, yeah. I mean, that's not what, what will change the mind of uh, no. But just to show the, the degree of worry of the Japanese, yes, they are very worried yeah. because they have heavily mm. invested in this country, uh, a lot in the car industry. And the whole car industry, and not only the Japanese, is very worried by Brexit because, as you said, the supply chain will be broken. Sure. And yes, there, there there will be huge disruption and they even expect like factories to close and, and people to lose their jobs. So this is how no deal Brexit looks for, for the car industry. So for, for Mr. Abe, it's a real... So, of course, now, I mean, what are they going to talk about? I mean, they're going to talk about their future partnership and in this frame... Uh, the only alternative is the, the TPP. Yeah. Okay, come and join us. They were so surprised and uh, I guess unhappy that the Americans who have pushed them for years to join this TPP finally withdrew <laughs> with Trump. So now they're looking for, you know, some other allies. As you say, Pacific is not that more relevant anymore and geography is not. But, but it, is, it must be very frustrating, not just for Mr. Abe, but indeed any other world leaders who will be coming to this country in these, these, in these troubled times to know what it is that they are dealing with because we're talking about, about yeah. power shifts because this is the Prime Minister. She is supposed to be in charge of this situation, but we saw the shenanigans which have been happening with Parliament over the last couple of days. And of course, the media take on this is that it is Parliament taking back control. In other words, they're taking the power out of Mrs May's hands and they're the ones who's driving it. But it comes back to the question, where are we going? Uh, and the answer is <laughs> we don't no know. one knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> don't expect us to tell you. <laughs> I, 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 I was going to say I'll tell you next week after the vote, but even then we don't know. So I'll tell you after March 29th, but even then we don't know because we're still not sure there'll be an extension. I mean, it, it is swirling around. I've never known anything like it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a unique situation in the world. I mean, such an important country yeah. with such an important uh, event coming and nobody has any clue uh, a few months very, before. Very un-British, Florence. Very un-British. <laughs> really? That's but, all I saw from this country since I've then, been but, here. But I guess it's, but then our, our indecision is, is a silver lining for other countries who might perhaps be trying to coax some of these businesses yeah. to actually leave and relocate to their shores. No, but what I mean by very un-British is that we, we are normally, you know, compared to our wonderful European cousins, quite placid and, and very straightforward and pragmatic, and we've just gone utterly mad. And we normally resolve everything over a good cup of tea. Indeed. Finally, finally, finally. He's 90 years old, not Tim, but he doesn't look a day over 16. Tintin or Tantan, is that the correct pronunciation? Tantan. Tantan Emilio. Tantan Emilio, the intrepid boy reporter with a blonde quiff and a small white dog called Snowy, first appeared in the children's supplement of a Belgian newspaper in 1929. Back then, he journeyed into what was the Soviet Union, pursued by a cast of dodgy spies and various other miscreants. 
Well, the audience loved him so much that Dantan's creator, Hergé, took him on a few more adventures, including a trip to the moon. So he got there before the astronauts. Yet even a figure as popular and as iconic as Dantan cannot avoid controversy in Florence. That controversy concerns his adventures in Congo and the depiction of black people. Yes, yes. I, ha- I have like one of those first editions because I, I think wow. now, nowadays children, have you heard of eBay? <laughs> children don't read the same Tintin au Congo that I read no. when I was a little girl and I read even later on. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's openly racist. But, but I mean, all the other Tintin are different. Let's say this is the, the yeah. controversial one. Yeah. The other one are, are not like that. And he had this big love story with this Chinese young boy, Chen, like, which is at the center of several Tintin, uh, Tintin in, uh, in Tibet, etc. So, I mean, it's more nuanced than that. Mm. But there is the argument that um, the depiction of, of ethnic minorities in oh, this God, strip yeah. proves that Hergé, the creator, was racist. Others say, actually, he wasn't racist. He was actually looking through the prism of the times. That's what yeah, he was responding to. It's generous, but also not necessarily not true. He was a product <laughs> of his time. I mean, Hemingway used the N-word um, lots of... He is a product of it. Listen, I never liked Tintin. I thought he was a rather irritating little character up there with Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> Why was that? What? Because he's a polymath. Oh, he's he's an, an explorer. Yeah. He's a journalist. He's pretty much everything. He's dull. <laughs> yeah, look, look, if you want to... It's I not mean, why you became a journalist? No, like because you wrote Tintin when you were young? I was going to say Donald Duck, but he's not the... I mean, I like Donald Duck. I like Bugs Bunny. I love cartoons, but no, this guy... Listen, the one thing I found out, which is really interesting, Hergé, okay, is actually his real name was Georges Remy. You know the French uh, Verlain, when you, you turn things round, the words, anyway, they turn the words round. So, Georges Remy is R-G-E-J. Ah, And right. that's why okay, so that's his how pen got, name was Urge. Yeah. Voilà. But look, I mean, whatever we may think about Dantin, whether we like him or not, he's still a very popular character. So why has his popularity endured. Why does Steven Spielberg invest all yeah. those millions making a film which actually gave him back a very handsome return? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Hergé himself said that he could not understand and explain to himself the incredible success of Tintin. And his explanation was, there's probably a misunderstanding in all this. <laughs> you know, which, which is a, a nice way to put it. Yes, why? Why, why this hero is still uh, maybe less popular than, than uh, uh, some decades ago? I think the more it goes, maybe the, more, the less it will be like sold as a book, etc. But I think it's like a bit like you, you mentioned Mickey Mouse. Or it's those kind of edgeless characters that, uh, you know, that have, um, that live out, out of, you know, he's not married. Is he a, a boy? Uh, he doesn't have a, <laughs> any kind of... or something. No, kind of, uh, I would pay money to see <laughs> Asterix the Gaul. I'd pay money to see Asterix the Gaul kick his skinny ass. Ooh, ooh. And on that controversial note, we're going to leave it there. Florence. Speederman and Tim Marshall, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Bill Luti, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri, and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next than at 1900 hours. It is The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. We'll also have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, that is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>